Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 3, Part 1 The Lives of Jesus of the Earlier Rationalism. Bibliography Johann Jakob Hess. History of the Last Three Years of the Life of Jesus. Three Volumes, 1400 Pages. Litzig, Zurich, 1768-1772. through 1772. Third Edition, 1774 and following. Seventh Edition, 1823 and following. Franz Volkmar Reinhard. Essay upon the Plan which the Founder of the Christian Religion adopted for the Benefit of Mankind. Five Hundred Pages, 1781. Fourth edition, 1798. Fifth edition, 1830. Our account is based on the fourth edition. Ernst August Opitz. History of Jesus with a delineation of his character. Jena and Leipzig, 1812, 488 pages. Johann Adolf Jacobi. The History of Jesus for Thoughtful and Sympathetic Readers, 1816. A second volume containing the history of the Apostolic Age followed in 1818. Johann Gottfried Herder, The Redeemer of Men, as portrayed in our first three Gospels, 1796. The Son of God, the Savior of the World, as portrayed by John's Gospel, accompanied by a rule for the harmonization of our Gospels on the basis of their origin and order. Riga, published by Hartnock. 1797. That thoroughgoing theological rationalism, which accepts only so much of religion as can justify itself at the bar of reason, and which conceives and represents the origin of religion in accordance with this principle, was preceded by a rationalism less complete, as yet not wholly disassociated from a simple-minded supernaturalism. Its point of view is one at which it is almost impossible for the modern man to place himself. Here, in a single consciousness, orthodoxy and rationalism lie stratified in successive layers. Here, to change the metaphor, rationalism surrounds religion without touching it, and, like a lake surrounding some ancient castle, mirrors its image with curious refractions. This half-developed rationalism was conscious of an impulse. It is the first time in the history of theology that this impulse manifests itself. To write the life of Jesus, at first, without any suspicion whether this undertaking would lead it. No rude hands were to be laid upon the doctrinal conception of Jesus. At least these writers had no intention of laying hands upon it. Their purpose was simply to gain a clearer view of the course of our Lord's earthly and human life. The theologians who undertook this task thought of themselves as merely writing an historical supplement to the life of the God-man Jesus. These lives are, therefore, composed according to the prescription of the good old gentleman, who, in 1829, advised the young Haza to treat first of the divine and then of the human side of the life of Jesus. The battle about miracle had not yet begun. 
But miracle no longer plays a part of any importance. It is a firmly established principle that the teaching of Jesus, and religion in general, hold their place solely in virtue of their inner reasonableness, not by the support of outward evidence. The only thing that is really rationalistic in these older works is the treatment of the teaching of Jesus. Even those that retain the largest share of supernaturalism are as completely undogmatic as the more advanced in their reproduction of the discourses of the great teacher. All of them make it a principle to lose no opportunity in reducing the number of miracles. Where they can explain a miracle by natural causes, they do not hesitate for a moment. But the deliberate rejection of all miracles, the elimination of everything supernatural which intrudes itself into the life of Jesus, is still to seek. That principle was first consistently carried through by Paulus. With these earlier writers, it depends on the degree of enlightenment of the individual whether the irreducible minimum of the supernatural is larger or smaller. Moreover, the period of this older rationalism, like every period when human thought has been strong and vigorous, is wholly unhistorical. What it is looking for is not the past, but itself in the past. For it, the problem of the life of Jesus is solved the moment it succeeds in bringing Jesus near to its own time, in portraying him as the great teacher of virtue, and showing that his teaching is identical with the intellectual truth which rationalism deifies. The temporal limits of this half-and-half -half rationalism are difficult to define. For the historical study of the life of Jesus, the first landmark which it offers is the work of Hess, which appeared in 1768. But it held its ground for a long time, side by side with rationalism proper, which failed to drive it from the field. A seventh edition of Hess's Life of Jesus appeared as late as 1823, while a fifth edition of Reinhard's work saw the light in 1830. And when Strauss struck the death-blow of out-and-out -out rationalism, the half-and-half -half rationalism did not perish with it, but allied itself with the neo-supernaturalism which Strauss's treatment of the life of Jesus had called into being, and it still prolongs an obscure existence in a certain section of conservative literature, though it has lost its best characteristics, its simple-mindedness and honesty. The older rationalistic lives of Jesus are, from the aesthetic point of view, among the least pleasing of all theological productions. The sentimentality of its portraiture is boundless. Boundless also, and still more objectionable, is the want of respect for the language of Jesus. He must speak in a rational and modern fashion, and accordingly, all his utterances are reproduced in a style of the most polite modernity. None of the speeches are allowed to stand as they were spoken. They are taken to pieces, paraphrased and expanded, and sometimes, with the view of making them really lively, they are recast in the mold of a freely invented dialogue. In all these lives of Jesus, not a single one of his sayings retains its authentic form. And yet, we must not be unjust to these writers. What they aimed at was to bring Jesus near to their own time, and in doing so, 
they became the pioneers of the historical study of his life. The defects of their work in regard to aesthetic feeling and historical grasp are outweighed by the attractiveness of the purposeful, unprejudiced thinking which here awakens, stretches itself, and begins to move with freedom. Johann Jakob Hess was born in 1741 and died in 1828. After working as a curate for 17 years, he became one of the assistant clergy at the Frauminster at Zurich, and later Antistes, president of the cantonal synod. In this capacity, he guided the destinies of the church in Zurich safely through the troublous times of the revolution. He was not a deep thinker, but was well-read and not without ability. As a man, he did splendid work. His life of Jesus still keeps largely to the lines of a paraphrase of the Gospels. Indeed, he calls it a paraphrasing history. It is based upon a harmonizing combination of the four Gospels. The matter of the synoptic narratives is, as in all the lives of Jesus prior to Strauss, with the sole exception of Herder's, fitted more or less arbitrarily into the intervals between the Passovers in the fourth gospel. In regard to miracles, he admits that these are a stumbling block, but they are essential to the gospel narrative and to revelation. Had Jesus been only a moral teacher and not the Son of God, they would not have been necessary. We must be careful, however, not to prize miracles for their own sake, but to look primarily to their ethical teaching. It was, he remarks, the mistake of the Jews to regard all the acts of Jesus solely from the point of view of their strange and miraculous character, and to forget their moral teaching, whereas we, from distaste for miracles as such, run the risk of excluding from the gospel history events which are bound up with the gospel revelation. Above all, we must retain the supernatural birth and the bodily resurrection, because on the former depends the sinlessness of Jesus, and on the latter the certainty of the general resurrection of the dead. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was a stratagem of Satan, by which he hoped to discover, quote, whether Jesus of Nazareth was really so extraordinary a person that he would have cause to fear him. Close quote. The resurrection of Lazarus is authentic. But the gospel narrative is rationalized whenever it can be done. It was not the demons, but the gathering demoniacs themselves who rushed among the swine. Alarmed by their fury, the whole herd plunged over the precipice into the lake and were drowned. While by this accommodation to the fixed idea of the demoniacs, Jesus effected their cure. Perhaps, too, Hess conjectures, the Lord desired to test the gatherings and to see whether they would attach greater importance to the good deed done to two of their number than to the loss of their swine. This explanation, reinforced by its moral, held its ground in theology for some sixty years and passed over into a round dozen lives of Jesus. This plan of, quote, presenting each occurrence in such a way that what is valuable and instructive in it immediately strikes the eye, close quote, is followed out by Hess so faithfully that all clearness of impression is destroyed. The parables are barely recognizable, swathed as they are, in the mummy wrappings of his paraphrase, 
and in most cases their meaning is completely travestied by the ethical or historical allusions which he finds in them the parable of the pounds is explained as referring to the man who went like archelaus to rome to obtain the kingship while his subjects intrigued behind his back of the peculiar beauty of the speech of jesus not a trace remains the parable of the sower for instance begins quote, a countryman went to sow his field which lay beside a country road and was here and there rather rocky and in some places weedy but in general was well cultivated and had a good sort of soil Close quote. the beatitude upon the mourners appears in the following guise quote, happy are they who amid the adversities of the present make the best of things and submit themselves with patience for such men if they do not see better times here shall certainly elsewhere receive comfort and consolation Close quote. the question addressed by the pharisees to john the baptist and his answer are given dialogue-wise in fustian of this kind the pharisees we are directed to inquire of you in the name of our president who you profess to be as people are at present expecting the messiah and seem not indisposed to accept you in that capacity we are the more anxious that you should declare yourself with regard to your vocation and person john the conclusion might have been drawn from my discourses that i was not the messiah why should people attribute such lofty pretensions to me etc in order to give the gospels the true literary flavor a characterization is tacked on to each of the persons of the narrative in the case of the disciples for instance this runs quote, they had sound common sense but very limited insight the capacity to receive teaching but an incapacity for reflective thought a knowledge of their own weakness but a difficulty in getting rid of old prejudices sensibility to right feeling but weakness in following out a predetermined moral plan Close quote. the simplest occurrences give occasion for sentimental portraiture the saying except ye become as little children is introduced in the following fashion quote, jesus called a boy who was standing near the boy came jesus took his hand and told him to stand beside him nearer than any of his disciples so that he had the foremost place among them then jesus threw his arm round the boy and pressed him tenderly to his breast the disciples looked on in astonishment wondering what this meant then he explained to them close quote, etc in these expansions hess does not always escape the ludicrous in the saying of jesus in john chapter 10 verse 9 i am the door takes on the following form quote, no one whether he be sheep or shepherd can come into the fold if that is to say he follows the right way except in so far as he knows me and is admitted by me and included among my flock end of chapter three part one